This is Ed Cashmark, the Everyday Economist, keeping my eye on the economy every day for you, with no bluster, no bias, and no bull. May 29, 2020. It is with a very heavy heart that I bring you today's episode from Minneapolis. I'm sure you are all aware of what's happening in my home city right now. More on that in a minute. Economic releases for today, international trade and goods for March. The balance was minus 65 billion. The forecast for April was minus 64.7 billion. The actual was minus 69.7 billion. So uh, a bigger deficit than, than March and a bigger deficit than forecast. Exports were down 7.4% in March but they were down a whopping 25.2% in April. Imports were down 2.1% in March and were down a very large 14.3% in April. So the fact that exports declined more than imports is why we had a wider trade deficit. Personal income and outlays in March income was down 2% from the prior month. The forecast for April was a 6% decline. Actual was a 10.5% increase. Now the range was a 9 point, a 9% decline to a 10% increase. And the 10.5% increase was even more than the highest uh, end of the range. And that was largely because of an 89.6% increase in government transfer payments, which includes stimulus checks and and unemployment benefits. On the other hand, wages and salaries fell 8%. Now, the consumer spending was down 7.5% from the prior month in March. Forecast for April was minus 12.6%, and actual was minus 13.6%. So worse than March and worse than forecast. And because we had such a big increase in income, again, largely due to the government transfer payments and a huge de- decline in spending, we had a massive increase in the, sa- in the savings rate, which hit a record high 33%. That is a huge, huge savings rate because it's generally in the rain, you know, in the lower single digits. So... An awful lot of saving, awful lot of money sitting on the sidelines right now, waiting to be spent when it can be. Chicago uh, Purchasing Managers Index, which is basically a measure of the activity in the Chicago area. It says manufacturing and and non-manufacturing firms are both surveyed, so it's not just manufacturing. The uh, business barometer index level was 35.4 in April. Forecast for May was 40. Actual was 32.3. So not only was it worse than March, but it was worse than forecast for April. So uh, declining economic activity in the Chicago area. And consumer sentiment... For April, or actually this is actually um, a comparison between the preliminary 
measure and the final measure. So the preliminary measure for May was 73.7. The consensus expected a slight increase to 74 for the final measure in May. And the final measure was actually 72.3. So less than the preliminary measure and less than the forecast for the final measure. So consumers were slightly less confident than previously estimated for May is what that's saying. And the market is down so far this morning, uh, largely due to co continued concerns about U.S.-China tensions with uh, trade and Hong Kong and and the uh, possibility of delist delisting Chinese companies on the stock market and all that, and uh, also uh, consternation over Trump's uh, rift with Twitter and what that means for social media. It's having some people concerned. So that's what's happening in the market as of this moment. And <clears throat> now just for a few things, uh, a few insights on a few topics here from the Financial Times. Britain opens the door to citizenship for 300,000 Hong Kong residents. The British government has opened the way to citizenship for more than 300,000 Hong Kongers in a bold repost to China's security crackdown on its former colony. The British move comes after the U.S. this week announced that it no longer considered Hong Kong autonomous from China in a decision that threatens to end the special trade status that Washington has granted the territory. In 1972, the British government made a similar gesture when it accepted more than 28,000 Ugandan Asians with British passports after they were banished by Idi Amin, Uganda's president at the time. Now this is interesting. Spain is to approve an anti-poverty minimum income guarantee to help the country's 2.3 million poorest withstand the economic aftershocks of the crisis next month. The administration argues that poverty was already a structural problem in Spain for the pandemic with more than 3.8 million households, a fifth of the total, below the poverty line and a tax benefit system that does less to transfer income than many other EU states, particularly in Northern Europe. U.S. jobless claims hit the 40 million mark during the pandemic. Two million applied for them last week. Total of 40.8 40 million have filed for unemployment via state programs over the past 10 weeks. Continuing claims, those collecting unemployment benefits dropped 3.9 million to 21.1 million for the week ending May 16th, or 14.5% of the workforce. The figure was far below economists' expectations for continuing claims to rise to 25.8 million, and the insured unemployment rate was down from the previous week's 17.1%. The insured unemployed seems or sometimes serves as an alternative measure of unemployment. But it is pretty close to the 14.7% that was uh, reported for April from the BLS. The Federal Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, which has extended aid to the self-employed or other individuals who would not qualify for regular unemployment compensation, counted 1.19 million new applications in the most recent week. Only a fraction of the Federal Reserve's lending facilities have been tapped. 
Of the 11 emergency facilities announced in March and April, which promised to make more than $2.6 trillion available, only five are fully or partially operational, and usage stands at just $95 billion, less than 4% of the minimum funds available, the U.S. Central Bank's latest figures show. So the money is there if people if people need it and if they can qualify for whatever program they're trying to get the money from. The U.S. stock market has rebounded to within 6% of its level at the start of the year, and American companies have been able to issue record amounts of debt. In large measure, that is because investors have credited the Fed with eliminating the threat of a financial crisis, putting a floor under asset prices and working to stimulate the U.S. economy as it reopens. In most cases, because the Fed is not allowed to risk credit losses, the U.S. Treasury is fronting taxpayer money, often a big proportion of the facility, given that coronavirus has upended business for even previously safe borrowers. The facilities are on top of the resumption of quantitative easing, the Fed's purchases of Treasury debt and agency mortgage-backed securities, which have also been critical for investor confidence and have already caused the central bank's balance sheet to balloon to $7 trillion from roughly $4 trillion at the start of the year. So it's almost doubled. The Fed has, however, bought $45 billion of payment protection program loans extended to U.S. small business owners. Seems like a pretty small amount. Okay, now on to a few notes from a webinar I watched earlier this morning uh, about leadership in a time of disruption. Uh, yeah. You could definitely call this a time of disruption with the coronavirus and now with the Minneapolis riots. Oh, my goodness. A uh, quick chart showed employment fell the fastest for 40 for employment fell the fastest for workers in low wage industries. So the bottom 20th percentile of hourly wages uh employment fell in those uh industries or in those jobs 32.4% between February and April fell for the 20th to the 40th percentile it fell 17.5 percent for the 40th to 60th percentile 11 percent for the 60th to the 80th percentile 11.6 percent and above the 80th percentile 5.5 percent so the bottom 20th percentile in terms of wages fell almost six times or about six times as much as the top 20th percentile. So this crisis is definitely hitting low-wage workers much harder than higher-wage workers. Now the discussion was primarily around education. Um, question was, what is the value of on-campus education? And that is posed, of course, now that people, more people are uh, taking online courses while on-campus uh, education is, is uh, locked down for the time being. Um, so what is the value of on-campus education? Well, in-person classes, lectures, and research are, are important. Um, this crisis can lead to better ways of educating people, however. The, the coronavirus is leading to greater connectivity as more people work from home, leading to greater access to education as well. Uh, the key to the economic recovery is consumer behavior. So they did talk about the economy along with education. But it's basically saying, or they're basically saying, how consumers react to the openings and all the new procedures, as well as all the news about the virus and, and, and uh, suggestions from the WHO and the CDC and 
what they think is, is safe, all of those things are going to be factors in how the economy recovers. I mean, we are an economy that depends 70% on consumer spending, so what consumers do is, is basically going to drive the economy. Uh, it's possible to have a V-shaped recovery for goods and services with uh, a big backlog, things such as haircuts, dentists, medical procedures, and things that people really need but haven't been able to access. How we are getting things done now may be the way we do things in the future, or at least give some hints. The campus experience is unique and important for students for relationships, connection, and collaboration, and that's hard to rep replicate virtually. In-person activities also develops trust. Hard to do that virtually as well, but for some people, virtual is actually better. Uh, one suggestion was to create the disruption rather than being disrupted. So this is primarily for leaders, or anybody really, but primarily for leaders. Professional programs could be more virtual, but undergraduate programs probably need the physical experience more than the graduate pro programs and professional programs. Impacts on tuition and revenue will vary across schools and areas of study. And when I asked about how all of this is going to impact the business model of the of the on-campus uh, bricks and mortar experience, uh, Dean Sri Zahir of the University of Minnesota said, small colleges were already in trouble before the virus and some will close. <clears throat> but she's not too worried about big public universities like the University of Minnesota. Uh, public universities is still a good deal, she says, and some students may actually stay local now that the pandemic has has uh, restricted travel or at least put it in the minds of people that maybe they would want to stay closer to home, closer to family and friends and people they know and recognize and feel safe around versus being in places where they don't know things about the, either the local culture or the local people or the local health care situation or any of that. So familiarity um, breeds comfort in, in this kind of a situation. And that not only goes for students here, but also students around the nation and around the world. So what she's saying is m there might be a shift to people staying closer to home to, to get their education rather than traveling intrastate or in or or you know among countries however she's very optimistic on the long-term prospects of the US economy due to strong innovation and a couple of questions were posed how can we reach consumers differently and how can we manage our workforce differently and those things are going to be driving how the economy moves forward uh, after the pandemic now for a quick update on the coronavirus for the world. The death rate was 6.13% on May 28th, down a little bit from 6.17% the prior day. The growth rate in fatalities was 1.3%, down slightly from 1.5% for the United States. The death rate was 5.84%, down slightly from 5.85%. The growth rate in fatalities was 1.2%, down a little bit from 1.5%. And now for my tip on how to stay sane during unemployment. Tip number 35 is under the fourth commandment of be good to yourself. Tip number 35 is temper, alcohol, cigarette, and drug use. 
And I can tell you from when I lost my job, that temptation is very, very high. Very high. And, you know, it really, it depends on your situation, what you had, what you went through before your job loss. You know, was it a layoff? Was it a firing? Was it some other kind of thing that led you to, did you quit? Uh, You know, it really depends on your situation. But um, some people depend on alcohol, cigarettes, and drugs more than others. Some people will abuse it. Some people will use it heavily. Some people will use it not so much. Some people will use it not at all. But I would suggest the best thing is moderation, as in many things, but moderation. Um, I wouldn't necessarily turn away from, you know, going out and having a few drinks with your friends or, or sitting back with a beer or a glass of wine and watching a movie or listening to some good music, but temper it. You know, do it in moderation because you don't want to get let yourself go down the path of being depressed about your your job loss or whatever it is you're going through and all of a sudden make your situation much worse by becoming dependent on those things and, and or spending money that now you really don't have uh, on those things. And... And then what that can do too is it can screw up your brain and and make your functionality less such that you either tend to lose some skills or you your skills diminish in proficiency. A lot of bad things can happen if you if you go crazy with uh, alcohol, cigarettes and drugs to counter your depression from unemployment. So if you want to use those things, do it in moderation, but Find other ways to relieve your stress and your anxiety and and getting, you know, all of the bad thoughts and feelings out of your system. Many of the other things I've shared in previous episodes can help you with that. Um, so tip number 35 for today is temper alcohol, cigarette, and drug use. So that's all I have for today in terms of the... Um, normal things I talk about on my podcast and I just wanted to say a few things about what's happening in Minneapolis Um, I'm sure all of you know but some of you may not that a police officer uh, a white police police officer I don't like to necessarily talk about racial things but that's what this is you got you know yeah, that's what I do when I talk about when I'm on my podcast. I say things like they are, and this is what it is. It was a white police police officer who put his knee on the neck of a black man um, after they arrested him for uh, trying to buy something, cigarettes, I think, at a local grocery store. He tried to buy it with counterfeit money, and... You know, the real question is, first of all, okay, did he know that that money was counterfeit and or did he not know? I mean, if he didn't know, then this is a completely innocent, you know, mistake. But if he did know, uh, then, you know, that's a crime, I guess. I don't know how serious it is, but it's a crime. But it sounded like, too, that he was drunk and kind of incoherent and not not doing well. So that's why the grocery store called the police. But 
so they so they talked to him, they arrested him, they brought him over to the squad car, they put him on the ground, and then that's when things got really bad. Um, the video shows very little, if any, resistance from the from the the man. Um, but they put him on the ground, and then they uh, the one of the police officers put his knee on his neck, and uh, this went on for eight minutes. And one comment, one analyst pointed out specifically that. His left knee was on his neck while the officer's right knee or right foot was at times actually suspended in the air, which means that all of the police officer's weight was on this man's neck. And he kept saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, don't kill me, I can't breathe, while other officers stood by and watched. Eventually, the man was taken away to a hospital where he died. I don't know if he died on the way to the hospital or died at the hospital, but it's almost certain, almost without question, that the reason he died was because of the pressure that was being put on his neck by the police officer for an extended period of time. Anybody who has watched this video, I don't care what color you are, I don't care what age you are, I don't care what political division you are, I don't care where you come from. I don't care about any of that. If you are a human being and you saw that video, it was very, very hard to watch. Very hard to watch. And there has been a lot of debate about police brutality and what should be done about it between... Republicans and Democrats over the years. And whether or not some of the things that have been said or mentioned or, you know, talked about in the black community was really happening or if it was really that bad. Well, the truth was revealed this week. If it hadn't been revealed before, I think everybody's eyes are open now. And I'm a defender of the police because we need law and order. We need protection. But when you see something like this, um, things need to change. And they need to change now. I'm a Christian, and I believe in the value of every single human life on planet Earth. Every single one. And I don't want to get into all the other issues that deal with life, but at some point we have to come together as human beings to make the changes necessary to improve our society and have a more peaceful coexistence. We just have to do it. It's hard for me to believe that anyone out there who saw that video can condone it, can say, oh, well, you know, they were trying to subdue the suspect and they have to do what they have to do to protect themselves. Understandable. 
cops feel, uh, cops deal with that every day. But this was way, way, way beyond what should be acceptable. He was basically, it was, a, it was basically a slow motion murder. That's what it was. And now my city looks like a war zone. Like I said to somebody the other night, I said, these kinds of things ebb and flow until suddenly there's a point where it snaps. We've seen it in Ferguson. We've seen it in Baltimore. We've seen it in many other cities. Um, and last night, or this week, Minneapolis snapped. Billions of dollars in damage. Cars, buildings, the actual police building set ablaze. All in the middle of a pandemic and a recession where millions of people have lost their jobs, and now... Just when the Minneapolis and the nation's economy are starting to come back to life, a whole bunch of protesters went out and did their very best to destroy it. Now, what I'm about to say here, I don't want people to take this the wrong way. I do not condone what they did. Never. I never condone the damage of property and 